Amen. Love singing that song prepares my heart to come up here and share with you. It is great to be together this morning and to have the opportunity to look together in the Lord's Word. We've been uh, joyfully rejoicing in the call to shine. And as we've walked through the Sermon on the Mount up until the part about marriage, we've talked about the importance of being salt and light. And then when we hit marriage, we noted that this was such a serious place of shining that it was the portrait of Christ Himself and His church clearly uh, testified, clearly stated, clearly demonstrated through the marriages, the families, the husband and wife relationship. I don't know if you've ever watched uh, firefighters work, but uh, one of the things that they try to do is when they're putting out fires, they, they try to hit the source. They try to go after that, that place where there's fuel, that place where the, the flame is the hottest, where it's producing the most heat, so they can knock the whole fire out and put out that light that is coming from it that evidences that there's still fire there. Well, Satan is active in his desire to keep people from shining. And so he kind of works like a firefighter trying to um, put out the flame that glows the testimony of Christ in the church and in the family. And so he aims the water that he sprays to put out the flame at the place that should glow the brightest and give the greatest light, and that is the central character of the home, the marriage. And so Satan is a brilliant tactician. And so he goes after the heart of the home in his attacks in order to diminish the capacity for that home to shine brightly First, in its own element, that element of light in the room, and then in its outer element, that element of light of a city set on a hill. If the lights that are lighting the rooms are made dim, then the city set on the hill is not so obvious. And so he's after two things. He's after extinguishing that element inside the home that gives light, and that element that from that gives light outside the home, and one of the places he's always attacking believers is at the place of marriage. And so we've been walking through together about Jesus' teaching on marriage, coming out of the Sermon on the Mount, looking after that in Matthew 19, and then going further and looking in Ephesians 5. So we talked several weeks ago, starting off, and Robin walked me through this real quick as a review, about marriage being a legal covenant between a man and a woman for life. And we saw a picture of the rings there in this picture representing something that we say when we get married. The idea of covenant is built in, and we'll talk a little bit about that later, to where we actually say, until death we do part. 
We also learn that marriage is a loving union where two lives are woven into one. This picture of fabric from one direction strands, from another direction strands, weaving into one garment inseparable. And that there is the alternate of covering and supporting as the garment is woven together. And then we learned Third, that marriage is a living portrait of Jesus Christ and His church. And we got this picture from this collage. If we go to the next frame, Robin, you see here, there's just the eye itself from that picture and how this collage of Christ is made out of the actions of a lifetime of marriage together where these lives are woven together in intimacy and are exemplifying Christ to each other for the world to see. And we heard that this is a picture of Christ and the church as husband and wife are together, subliminally creating pictures that give a hunger for the gospel itself. Then last week we talked about three things that Paul taught about marriage. And that was first that he assumes a miraculous power in his teaching on marriage. All the things he's going to ask us to do are supernaturally empowered to love and to give sacrificially, to submit in a way that is God-honoring. This is powered. And we saw the picture of a sailing vessel and how the wind carries it. And we understood that in Ephesians 5, when Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, he's talking about sails being filled with the power of the wind itself. And then we next said that Paul asserts a mutual posture, a humble posture toward each other. And that is of two broken, destitute sinners from the very beginning of our teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, where we hear, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then finally, last week, we talked about a mutual pursuit in his teaching on marriage and that mutual pursuit being the pursuit of holiness where the husband's hands, when he touches the wife, do not soil her. And then the wife, by her character and behavior and her pursuit, does not immerse herself in sinfulness that at this labor together, husband and wife are wanting to make this presentation of glorious purity on the day of reckoning with God. And so those things form the foundation for marriage. Everything we're going to teach today about the the man's role in marriage has to first have these things settled. And then these that we'll speak of today will flow. So number one, today, Paul tells us there are at least seven ways that Paul instructs each husband to love his wife in the same way that Christ loved the church. There are at least seven ways. We're going to walk through these, but I want you to note in verse 25 of Ephesians 5. Look there with me. Paul says, husbands love your wives. Now, this is important because it's commanded. Many of us think that love is a feeling. But feelings cannot be commanded. Love is a decision and a choice of the will. It is a willful choice followed by willing acts. I have friends from India. Raj and Martha Behara. I met them through their ministry at Parkway Baptist Church where I formerly served. And I love 
Raj and Martha. And so a while back, I had them over to our house and they spent the night with us. And I said, I want to hear y'all's story. Tell me your story. And they said, well, Pastor Bart, of course, you know, in India, all the marriages are arranged. And I thought, now that's interesting. They're arranged by one of two people. If you are Islamic or Hindu, your priest arranges it. But if you're a Christian, your pastor arranges it. Now think about that. The pastor actually arranges the marriage of all the marriageable people in the church. And he works with other pastors in his area or in distant areas to match up potential candidates for marriage. And so Raj and Martha began to unfold their story to me. They unfolded the story of how their pastors had come together and made this match. And as they'd come together to make this match, they had involved the parents at some level, but they did not involve Raj and Martha at any level. Finally, Raj and Martha got to have some communication with each other through a few letters. And either one or two days before the wedding, they got to see each other for the first time. They had never met. They met in the pastor's office and were not allowed to look at each other. One sat on one side with the family, one sat on the other side with the family, and they got to look briefly, greet, and then they had this long, thorough process that they went through. Martha was from the north. That means she spoke a completely different language. I'm not talking about Yankee and Southern. I'm talking English and Spanish. They spoke a completely different dialect. They met either one or two days before the wedding, had had a little bit of correspondence The day of the wedding, Martha was telling me, and Roger and Martha have a lot of humor. And so she's explaining the day of the wedding, she's headed into the church. And she says, I'm, I'm going into the church and I see this man standing facing the brick wall of the church doing some kind of motions. And I thought, that's a crazy man. And then when he came down the aisle, it was the man I was marrying. Raj was out there wrestling with himself about this big deal that was about to happen, that he was about to marry a woman from another region with another language. And guess what? In their regions, they're kind of like in the United States. If you're from one portion of India, the northern part, you like bread. And everything in your meal is built around bread. If you're from the south... You like rice and everything that is in the, the, the meal is built around rice. And so they're thrown together and have to live with the in-laws for one year. Now, my brothers and sisters, I want to tell you that you could not stack a marriage to fail more than this. You could not. 
I mean, in-laws themselves are, are hard enough. But living there with their language, their food. And so, Raj and Martha began two languages, two cultures, two complete different ways of eating, two different ways of thinking, everything different. But Raj and Martha were both Christians. And they both obeyed the commands of the Bible. And they are a precious, wonderfully happy, married couple to this day. Nothing can explain this except that love can, in the Christian heart, be commanded of the believer. And that a believer has a capacity to love that does not exist in the world at large. And so, when we talk about husbands loving their wives, guys, I want to tell you a very simple truth about everything else we're going to talk about today. The Bible tells us in 1 John, we love because He first loved us. Men, our capacity to love our wives does not come from simply the power of our will. It comes from the submission of our will to the power of Jesus Christ. And so as we are commanded to do these things today, as we are asked to go so far above and beyond what the world would say, we as a church family, we as believers have an obligation to do exactly as the Scriptures teach us. And so we launch into the seven ways that the Apostle Paul explains that husbands are to love their wives. Rooted in the Gospel, the power of God's love for us first through Jesus Christ. First then, number one, Paul instructs each husband to love his wife by sacrificing himself for her. Come with me to chapter 5. Read the second part of verse 25 with me. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Now, the language here is very specific, men. It's incredibly specific. There are two references in the Bible that speak of the specific nature of this language. First is in chapter 5, verse 2. If you're in Ephesians, roll back to chapter 5 now and put your finger there on verse 2 and see what it says. It says, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. When the Apostle Paul says, guys, loving your wife first and foremost means sacrificing yourself. He's not going to use little bitty small illustrations. He's going to drop the bomb at the beginning and say, here's what it looks like. The ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And so I've got one picture for us to carry with us today, guys. It's right now. Robin, pull that next frame. This is it. Men, when 
The Apostle Paul tells us to love our wives. He says that this is a death march that you will give even your life to make this happen. In Romans chapter 8, in that glorious passage, it says, if God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. The word delivered Him up is exactly the same as in 5.2 of Ephesians and 5.25 of Ephesians. It means ultimate sacrifice unto death. And so men, when Paul begins giving language of love to us, the first illustration is the overarching illustration that says to us, this is love. We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. By this we know love, that God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Not only for our sins, but the sins of the world. This is how our wives first relate to the knowledge of our love, is that we become men who are sacrificial. We are covenant men who swear our lives up to and including our death to preserve and honor our covenant that we make with our wives. This is the high and holy calling of being a husband. It is the willingness to be sacrificed for the health and the well-being of our wives. Paul takes from there and begins showing some ways that that sacrifice of love works itself out. So we go to number two. Paul instructs each husband to love his wife by sanctifying her. This means that we begin to give attention specifically to her holiness. Look there in verse 25. Gave himself up for her, going into verse 26, that he might sanctify her. So all of our sacrifice is to an objective. It's to an end. It's to a goal. I'm not sacrificing myself to make her happy. I'm sacrificing myself to make her holy. Because in holiness, she will be eternally happy. And she will have the greatest joy possible for a human being. The holiness that gives the sense of God's approval in her life. And so, husbands, that means we've got to find this balance. And I've watched men throughout my life and I've watched my life throughout my life. And I've noticed that men tend toward two extremes. Guys, we tend to either be very, very, very passive in this area where we really don't involve ourselves with our wife's spiritual walk at all. We see her and we make the mistake of saying, you know, she's having a quiet time. She's living a pretty pure life. She seems to be having things together. And so we say, mm, she can kind of tend to herself. And so we, we step back and we become passive in relation to her holiness. 
Or we tend to go to the other extreme and become overzealous and we are trying to fix her all the time. We're on top of her with Scripture. We're on top of her with reminders. We're on top of her with all kinds of revealing her constantly, all of her failures. Guys, these two extremes are very, very bad for the health of our wives. One makes her feel that she's got to go it alone in this spiritual journey. And one of the chief complaints that I ever hear from wives in counseling is, I feel alone. And so guys, engaging with her spiritually. But the other end of the spectrum makes her feel guilty all the time that she can never live up to it. And so the overzealousness drives her not toward the word, but away from it because it's always a reminder of some kind of guilt. We are to operate the way that Christ operates. How does he do it? Look at what he says there. By the washing of water with the word. This means, guys, we're engaged in Biblical, careful conversations with our wives that encourage them toward holiness. I don't know, guys, if you remember the language you talked about last week, but we talked about the wedding dress and the moment of appearing when the bride comes in and how she, you know, is getting ready. And the language that we used last week showed how men are actually to be involved in the process of getting the bride ready for the appearance. It was not a, a normal thing for us in uh, our kind of wedding setup that, that we would, the guys would even be involved. But the picture he has here is of a guy intimately involved with the wife's wedding gear, the garb, the whole thing. And if, if you will notice that uh, there are certain places that a wife can't see on a dress that she's wearing. She can't see the back. She can't see places like right here. She can't see those. Guys, your job, our job, is to help our wives with spiritual blind spots. There are things that your wives can't see in their journey that you, being intimately tied and very close to them, can carefully, tenderly, gently, by the washing of water with the Word, call to her attention for her holiness. One of the most embarrassing things that ever happens to me is I'll go through a part of a day and somebody will all of a sudden call attention and say, Hey, Bart, did you know you've got this big old stain back here on the back of your shirt? You look like you got up against something. And I think, you know, I've had this shirt on all day and I've been around all kind of people and everybody's been seeing me and I just look like a knucklehead with this on there. Guys, you don't want your wife going around with blind spots that you're not helping her with in a very gentle water washing of the word kind of way to say, dear, we're close enough that we can have this conversation. I need to call to your attention. And wives, wives, please hear me this. Sometimes you need to look at your husband in intimacy and say, do I have any blind spots? Are there some thing, is there is there something on the back of my dress? And be open that your husband may, in tenderness and the washing of water with the Word, help you see some areas that nobody else is going to call to your attention, but that God has put him in the place and the role of calling you to holiness. So guys, balance is critical here. Not overzealous, driven with guilt, always calling attention to failures and not passive, assuming that she is going to take care of these things her own, but 
the middle there helping her by washing of the water with the word. Paul gives a third way. Paul instructs each husband to love his wife by anticipating his presentation of her to Christ. The language that is here, look with me in verse 27. That he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless, so husbands ought to also love their own wives. So here's a picture of anticipation. When I was in North Georgia College, North Georgia College was a military college. And so I had to live this military dormitory life. And that meant that we were going to have inspections. And some of those inspections were scheduled. And so this scheduled inspection meant that the guy that was kind of head of the college military department was going to come through and he was going to inspect every single room. And that meant every drawer had to be in perfect order. We only had a certain number of drawers and there was a list of exactly how those drawers had to be. You only had a certain amount of closet space and you could only have so many wardrobes in there and only so many of them could be what we called civilian wardrobes. The rest had to be military uniforms, pressed and pleated and hung and every kind of uh, brass that you had had to be shined and the shoes had to be shined and in perfect order under the bed and the bed had to be so tightly, uh, tautly put together that they could bounce a coin off of it. And these inspections would come and so we would be getting ready for these inspections. They'd say, look, next week we're going to have a brigade inspection. Everybody in the whole college is going to be inspected. And so, man, we worked for the whole week getting things together and then we all stand at attention and they come in and they check it all out. And so we were kind of ready for that because those inspections were, they were sort of uh, telegraphed to us, hey, they're coming. And, but then they would every now and then do what were called surprise inspections. And so while I was working on brigade staff, I was up in the, the middle section of the dormitory where the, the head guys were at. And I was like this little clerk. And I got to live in the nice area with these guys as the clerk. And all I did was run errands for these guys. And so um, we got a surprise inspect. They never inspected this area. Because this is where the top three guys in the college lived. And so they never inspected them. And I was just lowly little clerk. I was not one of the top guys. I just ran errands. And so they came in one week and did a surprise inspection. And they wrote this note <laughs> and stuck it on the door. It said, nuclear blast, no survivors. That's how bad our rooms looked. Now, guys... I want to tell you that there's a sense in which your inspection is planned. There's a day coming that you have to give an account to God for how you took care of the woman that He gave you. That's coming. You know it's coming. But guys, you don't know when. You don't know when God is going to check you out. That He's going to call either by the return of Christ or through the death of one of the two of you. That He's going to call into account your life. The language that is used here is not that we're dressing our wife up to be sanctified in our eyes. 
It's that we are working toward a sanctification of Christ's likeness in His eyes. So that on the day that she appears before Him, she will be as holy, wrinkle-free, and blemish-free as is humanly possible as a result of the work of your life influencing and impacting her life. That's anticipation. You work knowing that it's coming. Fourth, Paul instructs each husband to love his wife by identifying her as his own body. One of the things that I try to tell couples that are getting married and I try to tell couples that are going through distress is this. You are now one flesh as a married couple. Anything that you do to harm the other is really a self-inflicted wound. You cannot harm your spouse without harming yourself. And you cannot nuke your spouse without irradiating yourself and irradiating your children. And so any harm, any wound, any hurt, guys, that we put on our wives is a self-inflicted wound and wounds us as a whole. He says here, verse 28, husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. So now that the two become one flesh, the foolish thing is to try to wound her, harm her, misuse her, because it will eventually come back upon yourself, myself. And so Paul says there has to be an identification that you know that the two of you are not two. You're one. Fifth, Paul says that the husband should love his wife by nourishing her. Look at the word there in verse 29. But no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, nourishes. This is a great Word. It is a word that means to feed, to provide for. I learned when I was growing up that certain animals actually have kind of like more than one stomach. Now, I'd heard fictitiously that some of them have like seven stomachs or five stomachs. But what I did find out is that certain animals that eat grass or eat grain or eat certain kinds of vegetation, actually have either three or four compartments in their stomach. And each one of those compartments serves a different purpose in the process of their feeding. Guys, I want to help you understand something that's really important for you. There is a compartment in your wife's life that only you can feed. It is not the chief source of nourishment that comes from God Himself. But there is a compartment in her that needs you to set a table and to feed her from. That that compartment is the compartment that God built in her to relate to you from.
to receive from you from. To have a sense of your input from. And that compartment that is there is the compartment he's mentioning here. It is a place that husbands alone are to pour into. And my brothers, the scariest thing that can ever happen is for our wives to have to navigate life starving in the husband compartment. It makes them weak. It makes them prone to failure. It makes them vulnerable to the enemy. And that compartment is a place that you alone are supposed to pour into. It is where you prepare meals that feed her emotions, that feed her spiritual life, that feed her mental well-being. It is a compartment that has your name on it. And it's a place of great hunger. And here the apostle says, guys, nourish your wife. Feed her words of affirmation, acts of service, quality time, gifts and physical touch. All of those languages of love that speak deeply into her being. Make sure the compartment God has given you in her life is kept full. And that she is not starving for your love, your attention, your affection, your compassion. Make sure that she is not walking hungry in a world of deceivers. Number six, Paul instructs each husband to love his wife by treasuring her. Or here, the word also is cherishing her. It's an interesting word. It's only used a couple of times in the New Testament. The other time that it is used, it is at the hand of Paul. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 when Paul is writing to the Thessalonican church and he's saying, you guys remember what we acted like when we were around you. We were like a nursing mom who tenderly cares for her child. The the line tenderly cares is the same word that is used here. It's an interesting word because it has to do with a certain posture. When we mash our thumb, what do we immediately do? What do you do? Other than yelling those things. All right. What do you do with your thumb? What What do you do? Show me. You do this, don't you? You ever notice? You immediately, you pull it to yourself. It gets wounded and you pull it to yourself. Your child comes running. They fall. They skin their knee and they get up and start crying. And what do you do with them? You grab them and you pull it to yourself. That is the language that is being used in the New Testament here. It means to take something and pull it into the space of your personal warmth. It comes from a word that means to warm. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, 
the time that it was used in the Old Testament was when the young virgin was sent to make David warm because in his old age, he could no longer maintain his body temperature. And so she used her body temperature to preserve his body temperature. It means to draw somebody into the realm of your physical warmth. Basically, it's saying, guys... When things are going tough for your wife, are you pushing her out of your warmth? Or are you drawing her into it? Do you find that things that happen between the two of you cause you to do this to get her out of your space? Or do you find that you do this to pull her into the realm of your warmth? It's like the mom who's got a little shivering baby and she snuggles him up and she pulls him in and she holds him until the warmth of her body transfers and warms the body of the child. Husbands, that is the tenderness that God has called us to operate in with our wives. We're feeding that one place that we alone can feed and we're drawing her within the realm of our personal warmth so that she is comforted. This is treasuring her. We treasure our thumb. We pull it up close to us and go, oh, we treasure our child. We pull it up close to it. And if we treasure our wives, guys, we'll grab her and we'll pull her up inside our warmth. And she will know that that is not just a thing of sexuality. It is a thing of value that you're willing to hold her just because she's yours. Paul finalizes it and says in number seven, Paul instructs each husband to love his wife by prioritizing her. I want to bring these two in together in an illustration that happened in my life when Sherry and I were a little younger. And uh, we were at a kind of a trouble spot in our marriage. We'd been married close to 10 years and it was kind of a tough time. And we were both realizing that um, whatever it was we thought it was going to be, it wasn't. And so some things had to change. And God brought a lot of things into our lives to help us with that. But one particular day helped me so much. I was, uh, I was on my carport in Natchez. And I had just gotten a new mountain bike. And guys, you know how kind of crazy we get when we get something that we've been wanting a little while. And we kind of... You ever seen a guy clean a, clean a gun? <laughs> you know, or, or get ready to go deer hunting, lays all the stuff on... Um, and so I was just obsessing over this bike and I was sitting um, on my carport. I was just just sat down like this and I was on my carport and um, and I had my bike in front of me and I had cleaning tools here and all those special lubrication tools for the, for the chain and the cables and all this here. And man, I was just had that bike and I was just all intent with it. And I was sitting between two doors, the door that came out of our kitchen and the door that went into our area where our freezer was, this little tool shed. And Sherry came out of that door and she walked around and she looked at me and, you know, I'm really intent. I'm doing all this stuff. And she goes into that room and then she comes out and she turns and she stands and she looks at me. And it's just one of those really helpful moments in my life. And she just very calmly, she looked at me and she said, honey, 
If you gave me the kind of detailed attention that you give to that bike, I would return it to you. She wasn't trying to start a fight. She knew that this was an object lesson for Bart. And what she was teaching me was these two things. Treasuring and prioritizing. And how easy, guys, we tend to treasure other things and get things out of priority. Look at what Paul says in verse 31, and we close with this. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is the highest priority that can be given. In the time that this was written, in the time that it was originally written and given to the people, there was no greater relationship than a man with his parents. His inheritance was there. His land was there. Everything that he possibly was going to receive from life, it was all there. There is where he was. And he was to sever that relationship and go off with his wife and put her above his own parents, put her above all other things. He was to put her above family, work, career, friends, and recreation. He was to prioritize his marriage as the most important earthly relationship that exists, second only to the heavenly relationship that we have with God through Jesus, our Savior. Would you bow with me? Guys, most of you have a job description. And many of you who have a job description at your work go through a thing called a performance review. And so maybe annually or a couple times a year, you go out and you get called in and they have a performance review. Maybe you give performance reviews. Well, we've just looked today, guys, at our job description. And I want this to be sort of a mid-year performance review and to just ask you, when you look at these seven ways to love your wife, how are you doing? Maybe it'd be a good time right now to take her on a date and take this sermon, feed her a real good dinner, And slide it over to her and say, babe, I want to know the truth. How am I doing? Because just like I'm called as your husband to find those blind spots and help you, I know I've got blind spots too. Would you just be honest with me and just just tell me how I'm doing? Guys, at that point, you say nothing back. No defense, nothing. Listen. Then take that piece of paper and what she said and kneel before the Lord and say, Lord, am I loving my wife as Christ loved the church? Show me now and change me. And then set a course that you'll change these things. Because the truth is, guys, This little job review we're having today with Pastor Bart and the little date night that your wife gives you a little review, it is going to be nothing because one day these scriptures will be what God
will ask you to have been a good steward of on the day of judgment. That's why in verse 21, he says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. What fear? The fearful knowledge that I will give an answer. I'll stand and I'll give an answer. So men, will you join me today in saying, Lord Jesus, make me love my wife like you love the church. Help me. Would you stand? My invitation to you is twofold. First, it is to receive this love. It is to know it by personal relationship, by repentance of sin and faith in Jesus. And second, it is to pursue this kind of love with your wife. Would you do that, guys, as God stirs your heart? Would you come?